listening to It's Bloody Complicated, the Compass podcast. I'm Neil Lawson, your host and director of Compass. Joining me to help manage the questions is Grace Barnett from the Compass office. Hello, Grace. Hello. These are unprecedented times and we need to rise to the new and enormous challenges we now face. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with writers, thinkers, politicians, journalists and public service workers about how we come out of this mess in much better shape than we went in, a good society after COVID-19. These conversations have live access for Compass members who can put their own questions directly to our guests. If you'd like to participate in a live call and help support all of our work, go to compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast to join Compass today. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy this week's podcast. Welcome to this week's Compass podcast, It's Bloody Complicated, which is a bit different. This week it's a bit longer. We have a panel and it's been opened up to non-members. Welcome to them. And it's not just a Compass event, but it's shared with Policy Network, who we are delighted to be working with and would like to thank for all their efforts to make tonight possible. Because tonight we're here to celebrate and discuss the launch of Maris Petrowski's new book, Left Unity, Manifesto for a Progressive Alliance. Joining us to discuss the book with Marius and the prospects for collaboration across parties are Compass Stalwarts, the journalist and campaigner Paul Mason, the former Green MEP Molly Scott Cato and Labour Norwich South MP Clive Lewis. The format will be Marius will outline the thesis of the book for 10 to 15 minutes and then the panel will respond. I might ask a few questions, let's see how it goes, before opening up to you. And there's going to be quite a lot of you. Um, Grace and Jack from the Compass Office will help manage the questions. Um, please keep any questions you have or, or comments brief so we can get as many as, as possible. And please post your questions or comments in the chat box, which you'll find at the, at the bar at the bottom of the screen. If you want to tweet about tonight, please do so using the hashtag It's Complicated. And finally, please note that this conversation is being recorded to go out as a future podcast. So, um, given those introductions, Marius, just tell us how, how you are and where you are. Um, and then start telling us about the book. Why did you write it? What it's about? And what do you hope you what do you want it to achieve? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Neil, for that introduction. And thank you to Compass for agreeing to host uh, this book launch. We live in unprecedented times. Who knows when we'll get back to more precedented times. But in the meantime, I'm hoping this can provoke a really uh, promising discussion going forward <coughs> past this podcast, you know, well into the future as well. Um, I'm currently in uh, my office in Oxford and uh, wishing I could go out more than the state-sanctioned daily routine of exercise, but, you know, we'll have to make do with it. Um, so I wanted to start the, uh, my comments by throwing out two numbers to, you, to, to everyone listening. Um, one is 28,450 and the other one is 5.6%. Now, if you're an election nerd like I am, you may already have an inkling about where I'm going with this, but just to be absolutely clear to everyone who doesn't quite know what I mean, 28,450 votes across 40 constituencies in England, Wales and Scotland would have been all that was needed to deny the Conservatives a majority. They would have overturned all the um, 40 most marginal Conservative victories uh, at the 2019 election. And that number rises to about 50 or 60,000 to secure what we might call a progressive majority. So a majority that includes Labour, Liberal Democrats, the SNP, Plaid Cymru, Greens, and the progressive parties in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin, SDLP, and Alliance. And 5.6% is the percentage advantage that that group of parties, what you might call the left bloc, the centre-left bloc, 
has within British politics. At the 2019 election, those parties took together 52.4% of the votes against only 46.8% for the Tories, the Brexit Party, DUP, UUP and UKIP. So numerically speaking, we came so, so close to ending Tory rule. But because the progressive left was fragmented, we now face a prospect of five long years of government by the extreme right. Now, from a progressive perspective, that is a disaster. That election loss was horrendous, both for us as ideologically minded partisan individuals and also for everyone who's the very worst off in society who will suffer as a result of that. At the same time, I think that outcome is also very instructive about the crux of the issue that I'm trying to answer in left unity, which quite simply is why is the left so fragmented and what can be done about it? So in the first part of my comments tonight, I'll talk about the first of those questions and then I'll move on to discussing my answer to the second, which is that progressives right across society have to jo join forces. They have to learn to cooperate or we risk suffering defeats like 2019 again and again in perpetuity. So my starting point in left unity is that this fragmentation is a result of certain pressures or crisis tendencies which lie deep within the bowels of society. These crises runs far deeper than just problems of leadership or institutional culture in the main progressive parties or their respective baggages of dispositional flaws and historical mistakes that they've made. That these, these crises lie deeper than the current insurgence of far-right populism, authoritarianism and chauvinism across the world, deeper even than the crisis of social democracy after the neoliberal revolution or the end of the end of history with the wars and the financial crisis of the last two decades. Reflecting on how best to characterize what I'm referring to, it struck me that it's bloody complicated is actually quite an appropriate choice of phrase. And I guess that perhaps the best way to express my point is it's only getting even more bloody complicated. By that I mean that we're facing three deep social trends. The first is that societies are getting larger and more densely concentrated. The second is that they're getting more complex, more specialized and differentiated, more intricately organized, more technologically sophisticated. And the third trend is that societies are becoming more fluid, less rooted, more interconnected and mobile, present conditions accepted, of course. Now, these trends have had two major effects. The first is on the fact on the different areas of our social life. They're becoming more complex. The economy, politics and law, religion, education, culture, health and caregiving are all developing in their internal sophistication. Uh, the relationships of causality and influence between them are becoming more and more Byzantine. At the same time, the second effect is that our different personal identities are becoming more complex. People have become disrupted and dislocated from their traditional communities and social norms. And those who historically resisted and rejected these norms have created new social groups and new values. And many people are caught in transition from one to the other. And the old identities like class, nationality, and religious faith and denomination have now also been joined by sex, gender, sexual orientation, race and ethnicity, educational attainment, age, health status and disability, and I only can only assume many, many more in the future as well, as salient identities we have to take into account. So I don't like to get a reputation as a doom monger, so I want to frame the situation that the progressive left finds itself in in a positive light. Fundamentally, this complication in society isn't a bad thing. It means society is offering people more opportunities. It's becoming less rigid, more diverse, more tolerant, or at least that the preconditions for it becoming all of these things are falling into place more and more. 
So from a progressive perspective, it means that we as a movement are becoming larger, richer, more self-aware, more attuned with the needs and interests of the very worst off in society. And, one hopes, increasingly capable of fostering and steering these deep social changes in a way that is as nuanced and sensitive as possible to what will actually improve people's lives. But the downside, the flip side, is that these same trend tendencies also create the conditions for fragmentation. There's been a vast multiplication of the different social institutions through which progressives have to pursue our goals. So we can't just put, let's say, a progressive party or labor organizations or charities and pressure groups or clubs of idealistic intellectuals in a dominant position at the center of the movement and then expect other bodies and institutions to just fall in line. But at the same time, we also can't let these bodies pursue their progressive aims completely separately because they may end up wastefully doubling up or canceling out each other's efforts. And there's been a vast increase in the different dimensions along which the status quo can be criticized and essential claims can be leveled against it. There are just so many more perspectives that the progressive movement has to keep satisfied. And again, we can't just put, let's say, class or gender in a position of primacy and subordinate other identities to those. But again, we also can't just pursue completely disconnected strategies for each identity perspective, because that fails to realize the synergies or resolve the tensions between them. So in this context, the task of reactionaries is actually comparatively simple. Their default position is no, it's negative. So they seek to weaken the impact of criticism or delay the achievement of progressive goals. And intermittently, they'll cherry pick certain grudging concessions as a way to sustain the illusion of honest relevance. I guess you could take the Cameron modernization project within the Conservative Party as a good example of that. But the task of progressives is so much harder. We need to pursue intersectional cooperation to corral all of these claims and efforts into the overarching idea of progress. So I guess what I'm saying is that in light of these deep trends, perhaps the current development towards a unitary and increasingly extreme right and a more and more fragmented left isn't actually that surprising. So if that's the kind of question we're trying to ask, what about the answer? The answer, in my mind, is to achieve progressive cooperation. So how do we do that? Well, in my view, the starting point is that we have to accurately and candidly assess what you might call the balance of forces within the population. To put it very brutally, Progressives have never won the unanimous support of the working class or of women or of people of color or the LGBTQ community and so on. That is obviously sad and troubling from our perspective. And part of what we have to do is to understand why that support hasn't been there, which could be as much to do with reactionary tendencies in the established branches of the progressive movement as with reactionary currents swirling around within the wider population. But to me, this also shows that we inevitably have to look for allies. We have to forge solidarities between those who are the worst off, the least privileged, the least advantaged along various criteria, and also welcome and co-opt the efforts of those who are relatively better off, but who are sympathetic to the progressive cause. So from, from the perspective of any individual progressive, individual group, there's essentially a series of concentric circles of potential cooperation partners radiating outwards from their own ideological position. Some are more viable or desirable, others are impossible or just unwise as cooperation partners. And progressives need to have a clear idea of which of them is a yes, a maybe, or a no on every potential issue on which they might want to gain their support. That can often come down to some quite crude demographic or numerical calculus on 
how to turn the progressive movement into a progressive front and how to turn that progressive front into a progressive majority. But the key thing to remember for me is that there are many, many forms which cooperation can take. One is pooling material and manpower resources, parties exchanging canvassing data, sharing activists for campaign mobilization, mutual financial support. Another would be progressives mutually supporting each other in skills and strategic training from protest and bargaining tactics to rhetorical eloquence. A third might be exchanging community liberating on ideas in more or less formal conferences and forums with cross-party bill drafting and collaborative policy proposals as the outcome. At a more advanced level, people can abide by common rule frameworks, explicit statements of principle, practical guidelines, and they can defer to mutually agreed disciplinary monetary arbitration bodies. And perhaps the final form would be shared control and leadership through joint executive committees and boards, co-chairs with agreed sharing of responsibilities, mutual veto arrangements. Now, not all of those will be the right course of action for every single situation. I want to stress that quite clearly. The point is that as progressives, we have to be flexible. We have to be prudent and we have to be humble and open-minded. And that's a point that Zoe Williams makes very aptly in her foreword to Altogether Now, which is Barry Langford's chronicle of the progressive alliance efforts in 2017. Ultimately, if we want to avoid the progressive movement simply being a talking shop of resentful curmudgeons complaining endlessly about the world, we have to deepen the continuous reciprocal engagement between progressive groups and individuals. Only that will make us a campaigning machine with a sense of purpose and a sense of direction and with a clear sense of what we as a movement want and how to get there. So to close my comments, I want to consider the question of where do we go from here and now. And if I were to summarize the message of Left Unity, it is that the future of the progressive movement is one of necessary coexistence. Coexistence between an expanding and increasingly complicated network of overlapping people and groups, and coexistence between a growing range of variant interpretations of progressive ideology. Any progressive alliance cannot be monolithic. It cannot be a static entity with a fixed character. It has to be a fluid social ecosystem, a dynamic network of intersecting activities and bodies. After all, it's an alliance. It's a loose confederal grouping of autonomous members who share a certain correspondence in their outlooks, a certain harmony in their processes, but who operate on many different scales, in different domains, on different levels, and so on. So in Left Unity, I've shied away deliberately from trying to present a top-down image of how a progressive alliance can take form. If you like, I'm far more Rosa Luxemburg than Vladimir Lenin in my own views. Though if I'm completely honest, I'm far more Edward Bernstein than either of them. It's a little nod for the political historians of you out there. Um, what this means concretely is that the changes in tack needed to make left-wing groups more amenable to progressive cooperation are ones that they each have to develop internally. If we are progressives who are convinced of the need to ally with other progressives, we have to push for unity within each and any of the bodies that we are a part of. And in Left Unity, I give a total of 10 specific policy recommendations, some of which are geared towards making such internal changes, such as, for example, ending the ban on people being members of multiple political parties. The second one would be progressive bodies like parties, trade unions, and so on, including explicit statements of principle and indications of their preferred cooperation partners in their constitutions and rulebooks. 
And the third one would be that all of these bodies should formulate a system of pre-agreements or preliminary expressions of intent to cooperate with other progressive bodies, just to save the time and wasted effort during the election cycle. But alongside such internal changes, there is a place for a degree of what I'd call institutionalization. And I think a good example of this in its embryonic form is precisely the Progressive Alliance in 2017, which set itself up as an honest broker to facilitate the conversations about policy and strategy that are prerequisites for progressive cooperation. Um, the key for me is to extend this role to the time outside election cycles. And I would argue that such an alliance should organize a regular progressive Congress to enable engagement and alignment between pro-alliance members of progressive bodies, which just as a reminder, I'm not just talking about parties, I'm talking about trade unions, charities, think tanks, faith groups, education associations, and so on. And this Congress should have a few specific emphases. A joint policy commission, where its members can develop shared frameworks and procedures for different policy areas a truth and reconciliation forum to arbitrate and settle complaints and tensions between its members, and an audit and scrutiny forum where members can exchange best practice in ensuring that their bodies are pursuing every possible avenue to advance progressive aims. In general, the point of such a progressive Congress would be to act as an impartial venue for any and all special or extraordinary cooperative discussions to take place between progressive bodies. Now, this may strike some of you as an unrealistic ambition. It's certainly ambitious, but based on past examples of the willingness of progressive activists and voters to ally and align on a tactical basis, I think it's more realistic than it might first appear. But even if there's only a medium to long-term ambition, that is in a sense not the central point of what I'm trying to do in this project. Towards the end of Left Unity, I said that the guiding principle for progressive cooperation projects is to start small, to start with experimental test cases with a limited number of people over a limited time and for limited purposes. I'd now reinforce this point by adding that no small is too small. Just because we can't immediately form vast coalitions with grand ideas bound together by a common program designed to face every new eventuality doesn't invalidate the attempt to conciliate progressive rifts to agree division of progressive labor, to mobilize protests together, or to participate in joint discussions. We just have to be very clear and honest with each other about our expectations for how intense, how extensive, and how long lasting each and every moment of cooperation is supposed to be. I'll leave it there. And I'll hand back to Neil as chair. Brilliant, Maris. That was a fantastic overview, really nicely put together. I think people have got a pretty clear idea of what's in the book. And the good thing about having this conversation is I think we're having it, you know, with four years to go, maybe. I mean, who knows? But we've got some time to begin to systematically look at all the different levels from the leadership to the parliamentary groups, to ideas, to parties, to localities, you know, to campaigning organisations. We can begin to put in place some of the structures, the cultures and the institutions that can, you know, I don't know what shape or form any electoral um, uh, uh, deals or arrangements will need to, you know, need to be in place next time, whether that's stand down, stand aside, joint campaigning, you know, all the different kind of variations. But we've got some time to do it. And the, and the challenge that you throw to us is how do we do 
kind of dispersed and diverse campaigning and politics in this complex world, which is exactly the challenge that any incoming progressive left, centre-left government is going to face in order to run the country. So we're, we're testing in real time, how do, you make challenge, how do you make change happen in the complexity of the 21st century? And over to a person who knows about that and thinks about that and talks about that, Paul Mason. What do you think about Maris's overview of the, of the book, Paul, and the kind of prospects for progressive politics? Well, thank you, Marius, for writing it. And, and I was impressed by it. And I learned a lot from reading it about the political methodologies through which you've approached uh, this problem. I'm going to respond by just outlining my kind of view about what the conjuncture is, what, what the problem is that faces us and how your ideas might fit in. So for me, what's changed in the situation since about 2015 is that a section of the neoliberal elite, the, the, the corporate financial business class, abandoned globalization, the rule of law and democracy as the playing field on which they were going to um, do neoliberalism. Um, and, and in Trump, Bolsonaro, Orban, you know, uh, the Austrian... Uh, the Austrian Conservative Party are all examples of the emergence of a nationalist neoliberalism. I call it Thatcherism in one country, uh, after the famous socialism in one country. <laughs> um, now, for me, what this... No, immediately that happened. It didn't require a repeat of the 1930s Popular Front because the question was, can social democracy mobilise the rest of the progressive forces in society around itself and defeat those parties at an election. Uh, can Hillary Clinton defeat, defeat Trump? Can Macron defeat Le Pen? Can Corbyn defeat Johnson? And the question uh, is on those is two out of three. Um, with Salvini in Italy, we don't know really whether or not we can defeat him. Uh, but as they have consolidated their, their, their grip on power, above all with Trump acting as the centre of a nationalist international, what's, what has changed for us is that we're no longer dealing with centrist neoliberals, globalists, trying to impose austerity. We're dealing with ultra-right-wing uh, reactionaries interacting with fascism. There's no doubt about it. Whatever the academics tell us about the differences between fascism right-wing authoritarianism, i.e. UKIP, and right-wing conservatism, they're all interacting together. Now, now, for me, with my Labour history hat on, what this, there's only one answer to what Hannah Arendt called the alliance of the elite and the mob, and that is the alliance of the centre and the left. So since about 2018, I changed my view of what the strategy of the left should be, and this has informed everything I've done, which is to say we need to form a fighting alliance of the left with as many elements of the center that want to defend democracy, the rule of law, and the multilateral global order. Um, now, with coronavirus, this problem will play out with in increasing intensity because we're now looking at, before, the fragmentation of globalization was just an aspiration for Trump. Now it's going to happen, and there's going to be a slump alongside it. Let us be in no doubt what the, the primary terrain of the struggle is here. Again, unfortunately, we kind of forgot this about the 1930s. You know, the, the terrain of the, of the struggle between the left and the right is the working class community. 
That's the tragic uh, problem. Because <clears throat> as everybody, it's, it's political science 101, and Paula Surridge's work on, on the UK elections is, is, is really revealing this, her work on the British election study, that if anybody's in any doubt, there is no doubt that the polarity of liberal authoritarian in, inside the electorate is now far stronger than the polarity left and right. And we have to work out a way, not either and or, bringing as many of the liberal progressive voters into the same, not seemingly even the same electoral project, but the same social project, the same project of defending democracy, at the same time as bringing as many possible, as many as possible, of what Surridge calls the authoritarian left. Now, I don't here mean, you know, the morning star. I mean, people who believe that um, we should nationalise the railways and bring back the, back the death penalty. Voters. That's the terrain of our, of our struggle. Fortunately, we have an amazingly well-documented example of how it should be done. And it is in the application of the popular front tactic by the communists in the 1930s. <clears throat> if it were not for an anti-fascist communist mayor called Jacques Doriot defying the Communist Party in 1934 in France and saying, I'm going to make unity with the socialists and with the liberals. And he got ordered to Moscow and he expected to be killed. Instead, Moscow said, tell us more about this. And so we get 1935, Dimitrov forces the Comintern to move its tactic towards popular fronts everywhere. What's the result? By 1936, we've got two progressive governments, Spain and France. And what it, the, the, really, the real tragedy is that modern leftists get taught that the popular front was a disaster. Now, it was in a way because the Spanish Civil War lost and the French Popular Front government fell. But if it hadn't been tried, Spain and France would have gone fascist electorally, like, like Germany did at an election. Now, we can't, what's the problem? We can't, modern left groups, parties, tendencies can't order voters to, to do anything. The, the fact was when the socialist and communist parties and the radical liberals in France ordered their supporters and the Catalan nationalists ordered their supporters to join together, they did. So it's different now. Um, we're also facing a, a, a more a deeper problem than simply the, the emergence of values voting. I, I argue it's about fatalism, that large sections of the population, even though the crisis crowds in on them, Iraq war, Lehman Brothers, Euro crisis, Brexit, and no COVID, um, th they are gripped with the conviction that anything different is even more dangerous than what they're facing. And we need to work out a way of sorting that out. I think the example that I think is worth studying, again, in detail, and not looking at its mythologies, but its realities, is Syriza. Syriza united the nation around itself. It united liberals. It united greens. You know, its flag is, is purple, green, and red. It brought large parts of the socialist bureaucracy into itself. And at certain points, it, it acted on behalf of the nation. Now, as regards to finish here, Labour, and Clive's on the line, I think in the Labour leadership debate, what, what you had was, you obviously you had the left saying, carry on as before and let's hope the electorate change. I didn't think that was going to work, and that's why I didn't vote for their candidate. You, you had Clive saying, 
look, the way to do this is we need a formal electoral alliance, uh, again, from the grassroots, as you suggest, uh, and uh, leading to an electoral pact in 2024, I think this is the summary, which delivers constitutional change. And that's the price we pay. I, I, I buy that, but I also buy, you know, I, I've been on the inside with Starmer's campaign and Starmer's real intent is that the Labour Party becomes that alliance. Now, whatever that, for Molly, I don't know what that means, what that would mean for the Scots Nats, anybody listening on the Scots Nats side, but that really is what Starmer's trying to do. He's trying to turn Labour into a party that can become the proxy for that alliance. I'll finish by saying this. I don't think the Clive strategy and the Keir strategy are actually opposed in this sense, because to the extent that by 24, 2024 that's failed, you then have to do Cl Cl Clive's strategy. Uh, and you, you have to do all the things you suggest, Matt. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, you know, from the grassroots, absolutely. But I think the only way of doing this is for parties, outriders, intellectuals to actually start putting their, you know, putting their sort of, you know, uh, themselves on the line and saying, no, actually, as in the 30s, class against class, or in labor terms, you know, the far left against everybody else was a nice idea when we were only fighting austerity. Because remember, that's where it came from in the 20s. That's why the, the far left had such a sectarian attitude to socialist governments because of austerity. Labor was an austerity government in 1929. Yes, fine then, but now we must build, we must build a hegemonic progressive movement to defeat this new thing. Thank you. Thanks very much, Paul. And I think what you raised there is the kind of, you know, the dilemma um, for Labour in particular. It wants to be the big tent, you know, and certainly Compass wants to see a campsite of, you know, maybe Labour is the biggest tent in the campsite, but there are other tents that are, you know, that are valid, that have a voice, that add to the wealth of progressive thinking and centre-left thinking. So over to Molly, how does all of that feel from the from the Green Party? And in particular, you know, one of the issues that hasn't been put on the table, the environmental crisis, and what does that mean to kind of a new and different kind of politics? Molly, thank you. Thank you very much. And yes, I'm actually surprised how much I agree with Paul, because it doesn't always happen, although I'm sure we have a lot in common. But strategically, I, I agree with a lot of what he says. I'll start off talking a little bit about the book and things that jumped out to me from the book and then go on to talk about what I, you know, my take on the strategy here. Firstly, I should start by saying I agree with Neil. I think it's really good that we're talking about this now, both in 2017 and 2019. We reached the point of discussing this far too late. And the only good thing about having this appallingly shitty government is that we know what the enemy is and we know basically when we've got to ally to defeat them because we shouldn't have had them in 2019 and we cannot allow them to, to win again. We're seeing now how disastrous they are in terms of lives left, lost to this virus, incompetent as well as callous. Um, I need to start by asking this question, what is the left and do the Greens belong there? Because, you know, in a sense, you can't take that for granted, I think. And, and the Green Party itself is, is a sort of broad church in terms of where people have come from in their politics. We ha used to have, well, the German Greens had this horrible slogan, not left, not right, but ahead. And you can see why nobody uses that, because it's summed up the worst type of, of green smuggery that nobody likes. But on the other hand, it does sort of throw into the discussion something about rejecting the sort of 19th century view as politics as a struggle between capital and labor and i think you know the green 
movement does bring something new into that equation, which I find um, a very positive thing because it, it takes out the binary and it introduces a new dimension. And I'd always rather have three, five, seven things than two things which just confront each other. But, um, but when I look at, at Marius, the way you define the left, which is that you fight for those without and you fight against those with, who harm those without, of course, that's exactly why I do my politics as well, even though those without might maybe have the planet included there in some way. Um, but I think if we, if we make a definition like that, what we're talking about, then we can see all actors except the Tories in this country signing up to that. And that seems to me a really important realisation that we have had, we've been dominated by Tory governments who've been incredibly destructive and have served a very narrow class interest because the rest of us haven't acknowledged that actually we're mostly agreeing about what we're trying to achieve with our politics, even though we might do it in different ways. So you, you know, you, you raised the importance of justice, solidarity, empowerment and, and so on, which I completely agree with, but I would get stuck on power. Um, and I, I don't disagree about the need to work with social movements and unions. And of course there's power there as well. But to me, electoral power is of primary importance. And maybe that's just me because I'm, I've stood for election and I'm, you know, in a political party. But I, I, to me, that is, that's got to be central to what we're doing, becoming the democratically elected power force in this country. Anyway, for me, that's, that's the case. And then I think we need to ask, you know, we need to distinguish between um, left unity and progressive alliance. You talked about progressive alliance, but else, you know, elsewhere we talk about left unity. What, what does the, that have in common and, and where is it different? I think we need to be very clear what we mean by both those terms. I'm, I'm not that comfortable with left unity because I think it, it, it feels exclusive rather than inclusive. And I think unity and diversity is what we need to be moving towards. And this is why I'm so grateful to Neil for, for hosting these events and for constantly accepting and respecting Greens as part of you know, as having a tent on the campsite. And after all, we probably do more camping than the rest of you say. So we absolutely deserve to have that tent. But yeah, to me, that, that's how politics looks. It's about pluralism. It's about a campsite full of tents. I don't argue about whether Labour will be the largest tent. Labour will be the largest tent. But the green tent needs to be a distinct tent in that campsite. To me, that's just, it's just clear if you look across the world, it's, it's the weird system we have here and the same in the US that stops that being the case. So here's where I agree with Paul. I absolutely think we need a popular front. And I use that as a slogan without knowing very much about it. I'm sure he knows a lot about it. And I think it's something we should all do, study where this has been done successfully in the past and where it's been done quite recently. I think Portugal would be an example. Barcelona would be an example. You know, we have managed to achieve progressive change in places where it seemed unlikely to happen because of a popular front. To me, 2017 was totally different from 2019. In 2017, we were, we were as Greens, desperate about Brexit, and um, we, we organised the Progressive Alliance as an attempt to stop Brexit. That was primarily what it was about then. And um, we just ended up sacrificing ourselves. By 2019, we were never going to do that again, and we will never do that again, because the party will no longer vote for it. We felt devastated and trounced after 2017 having tried to do the best thing for the country um it was used against us and but by 2019 the scene had completely shifted anyway because we'd learned about vote leave we'd learned that actually we were dealing with fascists and to my view to my mind when you're confronting fascists it's the duty of every democrat to stand together I, I, to me that's clear and we were in that situation in 2019 
And too many active politicians in this country did not recognize it. And, you know, we're in a disastrous mess now because of that. Um, a few more things, just a few more things. Yeah, I just wanted to say that pluralism is my, um, I mean, this is just the campsite point, but I think most people in our country don't genuinely in their hearts feel pluralism when it comes to politics. And that's because we live with first past the post. In first past the post, you have to say, I'm going to win. That's the only thing that counts. You can't say, please vote for me because like 10% of you might think I've got the best policies. No, if you're standing for election in first past the post, you have to claim you're the only right answer because otherwise people don't vote for you because you can only choose one horse. And that's why our politics is so um, thin and narrow and disfigured because pluralist politics is what works well in democracy and first past the post prevents us from having that. You talk about protest and construction. I just wanted to say um, that this is a tremendously good time to advance the agenda for the sorts of causes we'll hopefully end up agreeing about at some stage because it's a perfect time to make transitional demands. My main transitional demand would be the basic income. It's extraordinary how support for basic income has grown. Some people here agree with that, some don't. But you know whether you're going to demand massively more progressive taxes or windfall taxes or whatever it is is your thing, now is the time to ask. People have become incredibly radicalised by the coronavirus crisis and we have to get those ideas out there and get them in people's minds right now within the next six months. Um, I'll talk, I won't talk about Unite to Remain, maybe that'll come up in the questions, but Unite to Remain was a very interesting experiment which in my mind worked as a proof of concept, it didn't work in practice because it didn't have the power of labor in it. But as a, as a technique, um, it was extraordinary that parties did stand aside for each other. Paul's right, um, you couldn't instruct people to vote for other parties, but um, there was cooperation. I, I think it was very interesting as a proof of concept. Right, last thing, what do we hope to do before that? We've got three years to get this sorted. What do I think um, we hope to achieve? I'm hoping that everybody's going to agree with what I'm going to say now, although, you know, people will come in the questions and argue. But I hope that what we're trying to achieve is that we have a progressive majority government and in brackets, we never have another Tory government in this country. Um, that the parties who form that progressive alliance and it form the government that will run, run this country uh, after 2024, represent to the fairest way we can achieve the way people would choose to vote if they had a fair voting system. And thirdly, that we have, in 2019, I argued only that we should have a, a progressive alliance in terms of seats. But I think we do need now to have some basic policy agreements. Personally, I wouldn't take that too far, but I would do much more like what happened in, in the war years that led to the success of the 1945 government, which is that you had a lot of intellectuals um, working together on a policy platform that brought in the things that made our lives great for most of us that are my sort of age. And um, to, I, I think there'll be a lot we don't agree about, but there will be some absolutely fundamental things we do agree about. I saw somebody put Green New Deal in the chat. We won't entirely agree about what the Green New Deal would look like, but we'll all agree that the investment that has to be made to stop us having a very bad post-COVID recession has to be all about a Green New Deal. So I think... If we're gonna offer people candidates from some kind of joint agreement, and I think we should be doing that, then we need to have some basic policy. And in a sense, what that will do is save the time that would be spent negotiating for our shared um, platform for government with um, a platform for election beforehand.
Okay, brilliant. Thanks very much, um, Molly. And I'm not, I'm not, I, I think the electorate are breaking down. I think the, the party allegiances are going. I just think it gets first past the post, kind of pumps up the, the kind of two party zombie system every four years and then it kind of dissipates and then everyone is forced back into those things. And that's a kind of, you know, that's a terrible thing for a political system to do. Clive, a lot of these questions then land at the door of the Labour Party as the as either the, the big tent or oh. the big tent. I know, mate, it's really hard, isn't it? I know, yeah. yeah. Really Sorry. I, I thought I was on mute then for a second when I, <laughs> when I, when I did that. You're signing to um, people across yeah. the There is the yeah. party. What can we do to kind of get it to back PR, to become more open, more plural? Is that feasible? And, and is Paul right that that, do we think that's essentially, essentially Starmer's, you know, strategy to become the only, you know, um, uh, single Big Ten? Um, I think, look, I think, I mean, it's interesting today, there's been a campaign that's been going on, which is there's a vote on the NEC to, to, to shift onto uh, single transferable vote onto the uh, CLP section of the NEC. Now, in and of itself, that is a very in, inward-looking, narcissistic, um, uh, apparatchiks kind of wet dream. Um, and I get that for many people listening to this podcast, it probably isn't something they think is very sexy. But actually, there's a lot more going on here because what this is, and the way I see it, and the way I think many other people see it, to pick up on something that Molly's been talking about is, the Labour Party is, is still, I would say, I was going to say drunk on power. It doesn't get that much power, um, but it's still got the kind of hangover of power. And it wants to kind of, it remembers what that power is like, and it wants to kind of reconnect with it. I think when I say power, I mean 1945. And consequently, we still want to kind of carry on, carry on, trying one more heave. And although I think it's too early to see, say exactly where Keir is going, I mean, it's interesting to listen to Paul to say that actually, it is the one more big tent, but the Labour tent, uh, one more he strategy, which I think, you know, as far as people like Molly and others who perhaps are not hardened Labour supporters, I think it's quite demoralising, but I think that's possibly where it is. But the point about STV is that it's began a conversation inside the party about the merits of a different and more proportional voting system. And from that, if we're successful, and there's a good chance that we could be, the plan is that we hopefully then talk about changing our party's position on um, PR and the voting system as policy within our party, something we've never done before. Now, that will be a big, that will be a big battle, a big fight. It's an uphill struggle. But the reason is, if we can have that conversation, as we've done with the STV situation on uh, the NEC, what we can then begin to do is talk about the culture. And it begins, to, what that does is it enables us to be able to talk about different political parties, different political traditions in a different way, because we're not competing in the same way. And at least we then have the glue to something where we can find agreement with those other political parties, which is, look, let's get ourselves over the line in the first part, I suppose, and then we are committed, to whether it's a constitutional convention, whether it's changing the voting system, we're committed to that, and that benefits you. That's, that's the plan, that's the hope, and, and I think that's where we have to start from. The problem for the Labour Party, you know, you mentioned my pitch at the leadership, it, it was, uh, we put a standard down at the heart of what you would call laborism in our party. I don't think any other candidate has ever stood up in the PLP hustings and said, you're not good enough on your own to win the next election. And, you know, as you can imagine, there was a tumbleweed moment. There wasn't that many, there wasn't that much in the way of applause that came from it, but it's been put down. The seed has been sown. Um, it, they, they heard someone amongst their ranks 
a leadership candidate say this, and they know it. Many of them know it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to listen to it. But in their hearts, they knew it. And how many of them came up to me after saying, hey, you've got a point. I think you made some really good points there. But no one wants to do anything about it. So it's about finding more people that can speak up. So I think the key thing here for me is I think Molly's hit the nail on the head. Culturally, the Labour Party is in a very bad place in terms of wanting to play nicely with others. And as a result, I think you can see that our culture is one that means that we simply find it very difficult. And first past the post, and given our history, uh, we find it very difficult to work with others. And I think that means you need to change the political voting system. That would enable you to change the culture. Um, so that's our, that's our kind of approach to it. And that's what we're trying to do. I think if you're going to talk about changing um, the culture of your party, and then I think you have to also look at parliament itself and the voting system, and this is why. One of the things I think you can see is the Labour Party was set up to represent working people in parliament. That's what it was there for. But what seems to have happened is the, the very physical fabric of parliament is divisive. Yeah, you look at how we sit, it is binary. It isn't about compromise. It is about absolutely destroying your uh, political opponents. It's, a, it's, 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 it's one or the other. And the voting system, I think, reinforces that. So the Labour Party, I think, in many ways, which started out as a collective, uh, progressive alliance of various different organisations that came together to represent those interests in Parliament, it's ossified. And I think it's also been poisoned by the very culture of parliament and the voting system that reinforces that so changing the voting system i think is a critical part of that i think in some of the other things that you've mentioned it, I, I have to admit listening to marius, marius talk uh, and talking about conventions and trying to find mechanisms to be able to bring us together I, I, it's a lovely idea and i and i would happily work towards that but the reality is uh, where the labor party is at the moment it is on it's it's one more heave strategy and I'm not quite sure where we're going to find um, the opportunities to be able to pursue the kind of agenda that Marius was talking about. I think there's one, and I think that's in terms of the constitution. I think that there is, a, I think that there is a, a, in Keir definitely, um, perhaps more in a more mixed way in those around him, there is an understanding forced by the Scottish issue, by the fact that next year, there is going to be an election which could well turn out to be uh, a referendum on whether there's a second referendum. This is uh, on Scottish independence. This is terrifying, uh, not just the Tories, but the Labour Party as well, especially after COVID-19. So I think there's an opportunity there. The Labour Party sees that it has to move on the issue of the Constitution. And when you wrap up, the con when you talk about the Constitution, you also begin to talk about the voting system and about the United Kingdom and about power itself. Uh, and that's when you can begin to open up conversations and how those of us on, I'm going to say that, I'm going to say progressives, can begin to work together a lot better. Um, I think on Molly's point on left unity, I think that is divisive. I think that is a divisive term. I, I think, left, I think uh, left unity is pretty much like, you know, the whole, is seeking the holy grail. I think it's very difficult. I think Marius touches uh, in his book and in the article that I read on the reasons for that. I think technology is part of it. I think the cultural aspects that I talked about inside parliament is part of that. Um, but I think ultimately, uh, if we're going to try to go down that path, we're going to need some kind of buying for more than just our party's membership, more than just the Green Party, more than people in, in Compass. We're gonna need buying from people who understand that without a broader alliance, 
we're not going to be able to achieve the issue on, Scot on Scotland. We're not going to be able to achieve some of the kind of low-hanging fruit that's out there. The other thing I wanted to say was this. On Scottish independence, oh, no, sorry, on technology, and I think this has been picked up on. Um, I think one of the things that Paul talked about, about uh, making comparisons about the rising right and about what's happened since 2015 and nationalism in one country and so on and so forth. I think one of the key things that we haven't mentioned is the role of big tech, surveillance capitalism. And, and I think that gives us, I think it gives a slightly different dynamic to what's happening and a more pressing and urgent dynamic to what's happening. I think Naomi Klein has said that the shock doctrine, the 2.0 shock doctrine. So we know after 2008, the shock doctrine was uh, uh, austerity. But she's saying that this is now the Screen New Deal, which I think is quite catchy. But actually, it's the tech companies now who are beginning to push, beginning to drive with their right-wing friends using the pandemic to be able to achieve things that they weren't able to achieve before. And one of the most terrifying things, and I think we're looking for things to galvanize us, like in the 1930s, fashion galvanizers. One of the most terrifying things about this technology is that the machine learning that's required, um, one of the best things, one of the best fuels for these AIs is surveillance. Okay, It is watching people. It is breaking down people's uh, privacy. This should be ringing alarm bells throughout progressives for all of us. And I think this is something which is, is definitively different than it was in the past. Now, there may be other corporations and so on who are doing things back in the 1930s on, but this feels to me, this feels that it has a slightly different edge. And I think it's something which we're sleepwalking into and which COVID-19 is really pushing. So how do we collectively as progressives begin to make, and I think Molly picked up on this, begin to make that intellectual space that was done in the 1930s and 40s amongst liberals and progressives about the welfare state, about the NHS, about how we begin to structure society, um, given what had happened in the 1930s in a response to fascism that was gripping large parts of Europe and threatening before the, before the New Deal in America, America itself. So, um, so to, to kind of wrap up, I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole here, but to kind of wrap up, I think this uh, intervention from Marius is well-timed. I think it's a very interesting time inside the Labour Party in the sense that we don't have a leader who has knee-jerkily gone necessarily or crush all my opponents and only Labour can win. I think we're probably going to end up saying something like that. There are lots of voices in the Labour Party, but one, one more heave. Now that we have Sir Keir there and not Jeremy Corbyn, there is a feeling that Boris Johnson, the Tories are making such a hash uh, of this pandemic, that this is someone who will be acceptable um, to uh, a vast way of the people in this country and that Labour can then step in and win. I think that, I don't think that's possible given, um, given how many votes we need to take, given the first part of the voting system. And I think, that has to, I think there has to be a wake-up call inside the Labour Party to understand that actually we are going to have to play nicely. We are going to have to work with others. And I think there's a hell of a lot of work we can do in the meantime. The fact that we're talking about this three, four years out from a general election is part of that, is part of that story and really important because I think that will make all the difference about the debate that takes place in the Labour Party over PR and other things that come up, uh, which are going to be really important, that, whether this takes up or not. Fabulous. Thanks so much, Clive. Hello, this is Grace from the Compass Office, interrupting for a moment. I'm lucky enough to come from a large and politically diverse family. We really did have the full political spectrum represented over Christmas dinner, but in spite of our differences, we still actually like each other. Um, I've always known, because of this, that politics should 
be more about listening and learning from the people we disagree with than shouting at them and fighting with them. And of course, I've definitely known for a long time that it really is bloody complicated. So I was so happy that when one day I discovered Compass quite by accident through their brilliant work on the Progressive Alliance in the 2017 general election. Since then, it's been an absolute pleasure to once again be part of a political family where talking to people in different political parties, admitting that you alone don't have all the answers, is not just okay, but actively encouraged. So if you'd like to find out more about Compass, you can visit compassonline.org.uk. And now back to the conversation. Grace, over to you. Get the questions in. So we've got some quite nicely grouped questions. So I'm going to call on one person who kind of represents a theme of questions that a lot of people have been asking to get through as many as possible. So to begin with, um, Ginny Smith. You were asking a pretty um, good question at the beginning, if you remember that far back. Um, so you should be able to ask it now. Can you hear us? Um, I can. And the question was, was a very basic one, really, is that um, how, how do we define very clearly what is meant? And it's, it's been said by a couple of the speakers, what exactly is meant by the progressive left and a progressive alliance? Okay, so, so we'll come back to all of these at the end. So definitions, I think that's really important. Sorry, Grace. Okay, so you want to go through, get all the questions on the table? Yeah, just tip them out, tip them all out, get them all out. M Haggerty, you had a question about campaigns. Okay, so that one, I'll read it out, was just saying, don't campaigns mean very little if they're not accompanied by a national media campaign? And there were a few other questions about communication of a progressive alliance. Who else? Are there? Can you meet? No, people are all shy. So hers was, how should the left navigate nationalism and internationalism? Mm. Uh, Jennifer Waits, also gone, uh, said, how could we overcome the tendency of organisations to be wedded more to their own viewpoint than a shared project? And someone else asked, why does the left have such a problem with working in an alliance when the right seems not to have the same problem? Okay, let, let's, let's, there's, a good, there's a good bunch there. Sorry, Grace. Let's just go back and, and particularly the definitions one, you know, anybody. Um, Marius, do you want to come back on that one quickly? Yes, uh, thank you very much to um, all the comments from the panel and from the participants. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of synergies between comments um, that have been made, I think. Uh, let's address the first one of definitions as quickly as possible. So, I'm on the left. I think there are many on the left who are united by more than uh, they are divided by. So on that basis, Left unity is my own personal priority. I'm not trying to push that priority onto anyone in particular. And where, I expect... does Marius, where does that leave the centre? Paul's mm. point, this is an alliance of the centre-left. Are you excluding the centre? I don't want to exclude anyone who is willing to work towards the fundamental goal of improving the position of the worst off in society. And that includes bringing in those who are, as I defined them, those with who are actually sympathetic to the plight of those without. I'm not trying to exclude anyone from that kind of category. I do, I do think it's important to recognize that there are gradations of similarity between different ideologies. So for example, very crudely, I think you'll find more that unites a socialist and a social democrat than you will that unites um, an anarchist and a liberal, for example. But the point is more that there are areas of overlap for all of these ideologies. And fundamentally, I do think the term progressive encompasses more than just the term left. 
And that is, I think, where the centre and the left alliance can come in. I think the point's been made several times that uh, by Paul on the comments of what direction neoliberalism is taking, that's moving increasingly into an extreme right direction, and also the point uh, raised by Clive about privacy and surveillance, which I think are two very clear areas where liberalism as an ideology, as a progressive ideology, has to make its mind up. I think the past tendency has been for liberals to kind of ride along with the neoliberal tendency, and not just out of, if you like, uh, name nomenclature convenience. It's simply that uh, the kind of hegemony that, that neoliberalism and liberalism enjoyed post-1990 acted as quite a good synergy. That's obviously not the case anymore. And if there's one thing that liberals, you know, without any modifi mod modifiers care about, it's individual uh, integrity, privacy, um, and rights, simply put. And I think that is a clear area where the kind of anti-oppressive tendency on a more social basis of further left ideologies and the anti-surveillance uh, tendency or anti-state repression tendency of liberals would obviously align very, very well. Okay. Paul, do you want to come back quickly, on, very quickly on any of those particular questions? Why, why does the left have such a problem working in an alliance? There's, there's two parts to this project. One is to try and to try and get the left to actually stop fighting itself. I mean, to me, this is the front of mind for me at the moment. You've, even something like momentum is a site of struggle between two you know, very clearly opposed projects of the left. People are obsessed with, with that. Um, likewise, look, I called for, on Corbyn when he, was in, when he was leader to put Yvonne, Yvette Cooper in the shadow cabinet. And, I, in the full knowledge that she pulls some crazy stunt like she did today, which is, you know, not opposing the immigration bill. The reason I did that is because that's, we, we Yvette Cooper is part of the left wing of British society. And like it or not, we have to form a social force that includes people far, far more to the right of Yvette Cooper, unfortunately. So that's the first thing. To overcome the class against class, if you, again, I would really recommend to people go and read about what how the how communism screwed up the fight against fascism. It, it did, yeah. We overcome that, but then the, the hard task and see the missing people in this discussion are liberal Democrats. We could probably corral some, you know, Plaid Cymru SNPers into a, into the, this conversation quite easily, but liberal Democrats know because, as you say, Marius. It's not only they just have to decide whether they're for or against surveillance, they have to decide what they're going to do about the, the end of the world they, they thought they knew. The nostalgia for the Clinton era, the nostalgia for the Schroeder-Blair era uh, doesn't work. And, and at the moment, what we have really is a popular, Trotsky used this phrase in the 30s, a, a popular front with the shadow of the liberal bourgeoisie. It's not there. It doesn't know what it wants. Um, so, okay. so, so just to finish, we, we have to go out of our way to work out, to find issues on which we can actually get real living, kicking and screaming liberal Democrats into action alongside us. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and we are talking, you know, Compass is talking a lot more with the leadership of the Liberal Democrat Party at the moment, with Leila, with Ed, etc. There is a lot more interest in this kind of politics than there was 
pre the general election. Grace, let's get some more points in and we'll get Molly and, and, and Clive back in in a bit, but I'm just keen to get a lot more voices. Sure. Um, all right. Mm, somebody asked, is there, Tom asked, is there enough common, common ground to include the Lib Dems beyond just united against a common enemy? We touched on that a bit already, but maybe some others had something to say on it. Okay. Liberal Democrats, go on, next one. And the next one is um, from Matthew. Is campaigning for electoral form the best solution for better electoral power for groups on the left? Okay. I mean, of course, that's a catch-22. You've got a win office right. before you can, you know, before you can implement it. But it is it's sure. a means to galvanise, you know, the centre-left um, before then. Maybe let's um, get one more one in. More. Since, since we asked about the Lib Dems, there are also quite a few people asking about the SNP. So how would you see cooperation with the SNP working in the same kind of way? Okay, Molly, do you want to come back on any bits of that you've got kind of quick responses to? Um, so firstly, on the SNP, um, obviously they have much more power in Scotland than their vote share merits because the, the first-past-the-post system started working for them once they got to a certain um, percentage. But what's impressive is that they still support the PR system. And, um, mm. uh, yeah, I think that is a clear indication of their commitment to the kind of process we're talking about. But obviously in the uh, Progressive Alliance for the last election, we didn't um, discuss with them because Brexit was such a key issue and they obviously had a very specific way of dealing with Brexit for their own strategic reasons. A quick word on Lib Dems. Obviously, it's not good to speak for other parties, but um, my take on whether Lib Dems should be included is that, as I said before, I see this as, as an attempt to move Britain towards a pluralist politics, which is the sort of politics that I experienced working in the European Parliament. And so then you have an issue which you think is of importance, like climate change, seriously dealing with climate change. That's an issue we on the progressive side share. And then everybody brings their contribution in and you negotiate what your, your shared position would be. Um, and I do, th I found, obviously, the Liberals often voted different ways from me in the European Parliament, but often they had something really interesting to contribute that I could learn from. And I think that's, to me, that's what a progressive alliance will be. It will be accepting that. And we need to have one election where we have enough power to change our electoral system. We'll have to change the culture before that as well. But afterwards, we'll learn this culture of pluralist politics. So... A lot of the questions we'll be asking today just won't be relevant anymore. That's my hope mm. anyway. Mm. People mm. have talked about the 1990s and the sort of deal there was between Blair and Ashdown where they avoided campaigning in each other's seats, which isn't as far as um, actually having electoral agreements. The problem with that was it was predicated on the, ba on the basis that uh, Blair would introduce PR and he didn't. And I'm afraid that breach of trust has not been forgotten, even though it was Anthony Hook who asked whether that was a good idea. The Liberal Democrats got some additional seats, but if I were Liberal Democrats, I would have felt betrayed by that. And I, I don't think that's good enough. You know, I think we need to have an arrangement beforehand that makes proportional representation after the election inevitable. Mm. Um, I've, I've talked about the definitions. I'll just say quickly something on nationalism and internationalism. People ask why I called this government fascist, and I sent a link to some work I did while I was still an MEP indicating the ways in which our country was already then having um, examples of fascism and fascist culture. And I think the way that this government is dealing with nationalism is an example of that. And it started off with Brexit and this idea of global Britain, which is only a propaganda idea. It has no content at all. And um, 
it was interesting to see Keir Starmer then respond with like, um, you know, progressive patriotism. I don't think he used that, but that's what he was doing. I, I quite like that because it makes me think working class men will vote Labour, which is what I need to happen. But anyway, um, on internationalism, there is a huge scope for reevaluating that in, in after the, the COVID crisis or during the COVID crisis, because whether it's about short supply chains or the need to reshore production of essential industries, all of those questions are going to be up for grabs. And to me, the answer to that is to have um, to, to think about trade policy. I've, I've got a trade policy I wrote with other Greens in Europe, which I can share, which then achieves global justice as well as not trashing the planet just for the sake of trucking stuff across the world. Okay, um, great. And, and Clark, I mean, the, the difference between 97 and now, I mean, the problem in 97, it was only Ashdown and Blair talking. There was no one else talking. You know, and that's what we need to build up from now until the next election. It's yeah. a whole grassroots MPs, parties, localities, yeah. campaigns, etc. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I mean, just to come back, just to kind of pick up on what Molly said there on, on, on progressive patriotism. I, I, I will just say, you know, look, we, we do want, we obviously want uh, white men to vote for the Labour Party. Of course we do. Um, but I just think how you get that is, is another matter. I mean, we can talk about being tough on immigration and, you know, clamping down and, and creating our own hostile environments, which is just a little bit kinder than what the Tories are doing. Yeah, we might win some votes, but actually we'll probably make the Tories case for them. So I just think in terms of that whole narrative, I think we need to be careful. I, I think one of the things, one of the things I came across a, a saying by Leo Tolstoy, which was that everyone, everyone thinks about changing the world, but never ourselves. And one of the things that, um, having been in politics for five years and at the eye of a fair few storms and scandals and having a lot of people throw brickbats at you is you, 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 either, you, either, you either go down with it and you become very depressed and go under, or you develop a, a thicker skin and, and what I would call Zen socialism, which is just basically how, how do we interact with colleagues and how do we interact with others? How do we think about the world? How do we think about our relationships with the political parties, other political movements? And I think that's something we often miss. We often look at things externally in terms of uh, you know, institutions, in terms of meetings, in terms of policy platforms, actually, how we as individuals, I mean, I know this sounds like hippie, hippie stuff, I've been, you know, on a pipe or something on the train, but actually, this actually is really important, how we ourselves, how we're comforting ourselves, our mindfulness, our political mindfulness, this is something which I think is underestimated and something we need to think about a bit more. Um, I think, I just wanted to pick up on the whole issue of momentum, and that there are now three different factions of momentum, the way I see, see momentum, I mean, there are different bits of momentum. For momentum, I think, is particularly good in terms of it. And I'll come on to uh, a, a definition of progressive, perhaps, in a minute. But one of the things it feels to me, it's like, um, those, it's like people who are obsessed by uh, bits of the cross, relics of the cross, because at some point, something very powerful touched it. And the hope is that if you have this cross, some of it rubs off on you. Well, when momentum set up, there was an energy to momentum, which is gone. It's gone. You know, there was an energy to momentum when it set up. Add dentist momentum, add vets momentum. We will come to your home. Can't afford your can't afford your vets bill. Vets momentum will come, and, and that's gone. There was an energy to it, and what you can see the left doing is they're trying to re, they're trying to kind of like shake this thing and say rekindle, activate. If we've got the name, it, it must still be in there. It's gone, and I think that's because the, the fighting over it means whatever the magic was that was there has dissipated. So I think we have to understand a name in itself isn't going to change everything. And what are those themes about what? Uh, progressives are, but we've been trying to do some mapping on what the radical left is. So not the orthodox left, not the soft left. And we've come up with things like democratic, committed to democracy, open to new ideas, tolerant, 
climate committees. And there are a few others, but there are certain things which you can begin to rally around, which are quite broad and go beyond the Labour Party and go into the, liberal, into the, into the into Liberals. And I think, I just finish on this, the point that was made about the Liberals, I think they do need to choose. I think that was a very prescient point that was made. They need to choose. You know, and their former leader now has gone off to work for Facebook. You know, Facebook is an appalling organization and institution in what it's doing. Retivadence capitalism, listen to it, watch it, uh, read it. Um, and I think they, they as a party need to understand which side are they on? Are they on the progressive side or are they going to now tie themselves? And it's the same for what you would call liberals within the Tories, that some of them are going to have to make choices about which, which side they're on. And we have to be as open and, and welcoming of them as much as we can uh, as, uh, to be able to, for them to be able to feel they can make a decisive break with something which has now morphed and fundamentally changed. Very final thing on nationalism, I will say, is this. I think that one of the ways combat nationalism, I think one of the ways that Keir understands that we can, if you want, combat Scottish nationalism is by giving uh, people more power close to where they are. My understanding of the 19th century rise of nationalism was that, you know, distant imperial powers ruled over vast waves of people. Uh, and, and that obviously was one of the factors behind nationalism. Nothing's changed. You know, it's just on a smaller scale. People in Scotland want to have power. People in Yorkshire want to have power in their community. Give them that. And I think it undermines some of the more negative right-wing reactionary nationalistic kind of claptrap that comes out. You can begin to give people real power, taking back control. And I think that's, what, that's one of the ways that you can counter it. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Clive. Uh, Grace, let's get a final batch of as many points in for kind of, you know, five minutes or so, um, many questions and people as possible. Thank you. Sure. Um, so let's see. Um, we had a question actually about COVID crisis, which we haven't really talked about so far directly. Someone says, the crisis is deepening the structural inequalities that exist in our society. How might progressive leverage in this moment Sorry, how might progressive le leverage this moment to replace the right? So that was from uh, Arnab. Um, already talked about that, so I'll skip that. Uh, we had someone else, John, why does the left have such a problem with working in an alliance when the right seems not to have the same problem? We talk, kind of talked quite a lot about why the left has a problem, but not so much about why the, the right doesn't have a problem. Um, is that enough to be going on with? What if I'm more, more? Can you get? Can we get a couple of people actually speaking in, if that's possible? Yeah, sure. If we've got time. Um, so I actually wanted to bring in um, Anthony Hook. If you're still there, Anthony. He's so I can read what Anthony was saying in the chat okay. about. Um, so he pointed out that we have local elections every year for the next three years, which are a good opportunity to build trust and cooperation. He also said, as a Liberal Democrat, I can say we have no nostalgia for the Blair era, and he was surprised to hear that. Um, and then he asked, um, sorry, I didn't ask, he said the Resolution Foundation found that in 2019, the Lib Dem manifesto offered more for the poor than the Labour manifesto. Um, so that's that. Uh, is that enough? Do you want more? No, a couple more and then, and then we'll head towards a kind of roundup because time's moving on. Okay. Um, i trying to think who else to bring in. Oh, this is an easy question, actually. Um, Dennis was asking, has Marius ever stood for election? Pretty sure you can answer that one. Marius, you can confess all. Not, not in that shirt, he didn't. <laughs> um, I think that's, that's all for now. I'll, I'll get a few more together if we can answer them.
Um, yeah, I'm, I'm keen. Um, uh, okay, let, let's see where we go. Um, Marius, you want to let, let, quickly, and then we'll see if there's a couple more questions before we wrap up and, and wind up. Marius, anything you want to come back on then? The right? Uh, yes, absolutely. So I think I've, I've neglected to answer some of the questions earlier, so I'm going to try and integrate them into my comments now. Very simply, I've not stood for election, at least not at any national or local level. Um, we yet to see whether new opportunities arise for that in the future, but no, and not in this shirt either, no. Um, as far as I want to unite the areas of policy coordination with the current crisis, um, I think the comments by Anthony about um, the fact that the Resolution Foundation found, if you like, differentials between what you might see as a stereotypical um, alignment of Labour and Lib Dems on who offers what to the poor is actually probably a good illustration of the fact that if you go back far enough, these parties have often outflanked each other on the left or on progressive issues depending on quite how you matrix the different issues relative to each other. So I think that a fairer economy and, for example, increasing spending on education and healthcare would be things that a lot of progressives would sign up to. The same goes for constitutional reforms. And I think um, I'm incredibly glad that there are considerations being given to introduce STV within the NEC elections in Labour, uh, just because... Certainly in my experience, when I work on the history of social democracy in the early 20th century and the conversations happening around that kind of time about the way in which party democratization, if you like, aligns with or fuels views on national democratization are really, really interesting. Because I think the point was made very clearly, if you get people used to working with a different voting system within their own party, they're simply going to be more in favor of doing this at a national level as well. I think... Uh, the question of local elections is an interesting one. I also, I think a few points have been made earlier on about, well, maybe let's not rely too far on the fact that we've got four years to go. We may have four years to go, but we certainly have plenty of elections happening um, before then. And for all we know, we might find ourselves in a situation where the Tories call a snap election if they're worried that any longer and Labour will, you know, rise out from its current deficit position to actually challenge it as the main party of government. Um, so I think we can't leave this, you know, push this out into the long term. We have to start having these conversations and building these strategies now as quickly as possible. And I think it's vital to start these conversations with whoever, whoever is currently prepared to start having them. If that currently means the Labour Party isn't necessarily institutionally willing to do that, that's sad but that shouldn't stop the rest of us from having these conversations. And yes, I do think these conversations should include the SNP, Plaid, Sinn Féin, SDLP, Alliance, every single part of that progressive centre-left block that I identified at the start of my comments. Anyone who's willing to subscribe to the idea that there are people who are badly off in society whose situation needs to be made better. And that can, and this may be controversial, includes what is left of wet or liberal-leaning Tories as well people who in other systems might be Christian Democrats. They are not historically reactionary at all times. There are certainly times when, if you go back to, if you look at Europe, if you look at um, the early 20th century, people who subscribed to Catholic social policy were occasionally very much behind policies and ideas that were pushed by um, parties of the left. So okay. I think that's a good way to define yeah. progressivism in a bigger I think we certainly need to win those people over to a progressive politics as they were in 1945 paul why, why are the right good at solidarity and better at solidarity than us briefly i think that 
they have a project. Conservatism is a project of um, maintaining the status quo uh, in the end. And you cannot understand the, the glue that holds together uh, everybody from Ian Duncan Smith and Preeti Patel through to Aaron Banks and Farage through to Tommy Robinson, unless you understand racism. And the problem the left has is it doesn't want to accept that large parts of the British working class have been and have been since the 19th century imperialist, white supremacist, racist. You just can't understand it. No, large parts of them were not. I come from a Labourite tradi traditional family where I could probably say there was inadvertent racism, but I was surrounded by people who fought racism inside the working class. Unless you understand that racism is the thing that sticks together this phenomenon, uh, why do people vote for Johnson? Why do people vote for Johnson even as he, his policies kill their grandmother in a care home? They say good old Boris because good old Boris tells them that they are superior to people of colour and people in the global mm. south. Until the Western left understands this, it will never understand the, 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 the alliance building it has to do and the challenge it has to make inside working class communities to, to that thing. So that's, that's why they're good. Because it's not because they all went to Eton and Oxford, because they didn't. The UKIPers didn't. Um, can, can, I come, a, a share... can I come in on that? Yeah, go on. Go on. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm just going to say, I, I think you're right, Paul. I think the other, the other side of this is, you know, we're talking about Yvette Cooper and what she's done. I, I think the other part of this is that the, the, the hangover of colonialism, of slavery, and the structural racism that's resulted from that, and the supremacy kind of narrative that is there and implicit in so much as you've just discussed, it, it, it runs deep and it isn't just that working class. They may, they may express their racism in a far more vulgar, crude, violent, uh, outward way, but actually it runs through the very fabric of the left. It, runs, it, 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 it may not be as, uh, as outgoing, outspoken, as visible, but this, our party, the Labour Party, refuses to engage in a real debate on identity, on our place in the world in the 21st century, on who we are as a British people in a post-colonial era, on structural racism. It doesn't happen. We shy away from it. That's partly because black, uh, black activists, Asian Bay members in the Labour Party are so weak, are so disorganised. Uh, watch this space. But that is partly because we do not have that conversation. And it goes far deeper than just saying that the white working class are racist. That the very, the very, the very establishment of the eye of identity as Britain, as British, as British people, is based on uh, racism. You look at Clement Attlee. You look at the 1948 uh, Nationalities Act. You look at what happened in Yemen. You look throughout history under Labour governments. Um, you can begin to see how this permeates far deeper than just the way. If we don't see that in ourselves as so-called kind of middle class progressives in this country then we're never going to want to call it out, never want to have that discussion, never want to have that debate. It's a painful debate. And, it, and I, don't, I don't think we're quite, I don't know, we have to be ready to have it because if we don't, we'll never be able to kind of get past square, you know, the first page. Yeah. I com completely agree. Let, let's have that debate and we need to have that debate at Compass as well. Grace, just a couple more before then we do a kind of a final wrap up. The panel has discussed organisation of the left from within the prism of electoral politics, 
but should we not also look outside this, particularly in the recovery period of the coronavirus recession? Okay, maybe one, one more. Got any one more. Okay, yeah. Okay, from Rod, what is the strategy for local and regional government where it might be possible to make early gains? Okay, good stuff. So let's kind of do a final quick whisk round and particular what we need to do organisationally and politically in order to build whatever we call it, the popular front, left unity, the progressive alliance, whatever it is. What are the things we need to do? Molly, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. There were quite a few questions on the chat about COVID and I already mentioned what a radicalising process is and how we need to get our transitional demands in there right now. But I also wanted to say of course, they will use that as a platform for the next round of austerity, and that's already the debate. I've written something that I hope will be launching from the Green Party quite soon about how we finance the post-COVID recovery. And the, the basic argument is if we've lost a third of our economy, let's make sure it's the third that belongs to the rich, which is kind of fairly uncontroversial. <laughs> and, you know, how do we make that in practice? I, I make some arguments along those lines, but that's what we absolutely need to be saying. We're going to lose massive asset values. And we need to make sure that the right people lose value uh, and the rest of us don't. Um, and of course, the really big threat from COVID is that we will end up in a sort of mutual debt disaster across the world and just go downhill into a, a global depression on 1930s level. You know, at the end of that road is a war. So we absolutely have to stop um, debt in our own country, but then also have a, a negotiation over an international debt um, recovery progress and new financial architecture. Now, what do we need to do? I think what we really need to do is imagine what we want the parliament to look like in 2024 and what we want the government to look like. Now, I, can Im I, I want to have a, a Labour-led government that also includes Greens. Um, Scottish nationalists might, might refuse and only come in on um, confidence and supply. You know, Liberals, would they be part of it? It depends, but that's what we need to imagine. Certainly in terms of the parliament, it must have a... a progressive majority this is what we're trying to achieve and once we have that vision and hopefully the majority of us can share that vision and can play some part in that government that would be my vision of where we're going and once we know that then we can start to negotiate what we share in terms of a policy platform so that we can be clear about what we're offering to the electorate and then I think we need to be very clear with the electorate look you've got the Tories over here that as Paul says killed your old people in care homes and no doubt by that time a whole lot of sleaze as well um okay. or you know you can vote for this platform of constitutional reform pluralist politics and a shared and cooperative government it's an it's a complete winner isn't it we're going to win this okay fantastic great stuff molly paul what do we need to do what do we need to what do we need to do look of marius's suggestions in the book um i think the ones at the grassroots are sadly, I just don't, I don't see my, my, my comrades in Momentum or Vauxhall Labour Party getting together and forming this kind of grassroots, granular thing that creates the, 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 the alliance. But I, I, I do like the idea of a progressive Congress. I like the idea of a big thing. That would resonate even with the kind of orthodox left, you know, some of whom do understand the lessons of the 30s. You remember the people's, the, what's it called? Um, what's the, the thing, the SWP front, it became an SWP front, the, 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 the People's okay. Assembly. Assembly. Yeah. I mean, that was a, a carbon copy of the Communist Party's tactic in 1940-41. And I, I, you could look, you, if you could fill Westminster 
central hall with people standing two meters apart um, who'd been delegated there by the Greens, the SNP, Plaid, Labour, Labour constituency groups in defiance of the one more push thing and some Lib Dems and some, some people from working class communities who don't oppose Brexit, for example, you know, and give them a, a full, you know, bit of the thing that I think that's what I would like to see at some point in the next two years. Okay, Compass can take that definitely, and you'll you'll be on the panel, Paul. Uh, Clive, <laughs> what do we need to do? Clive, uh, go on. Sorry, can you can you hear me? Okay, loud and clear. Can you hear me now? Yeah, sorry, thank you. I think what we need to do is get the uh, debate on PR and the change of policy. That's the first thing because that will, I think, uh, that will kickstart some of the cultural changes uh, and mindsets that are required. I think the other thing that really excites me is the Green New Deal. I think this is something which, as an umbrella concept, is something which appeals to what we would consider, what I would think is a definition, a basic definition of progressives, which is about uh, climate awareness, understanding that climate is critical for everything. Uh, and I think the Green New Deal is part and parcel of that. And it's a very broad concept, um, so they can bring in a lot of people. And then I think as well, um, these are kind of uh, to do things. I think the Build Back Better campaign, the Umbrella campaign, trying to make common sense of progressive issues about how we change after COVID-19. There is a window of opportunity here for a paradigm shift. We may not, we may not do it, but I think whether we get all of the changes we want or just some of them, the reality is that this offers an opportunity for us to link up with people who understand at this moment that something needs to change for the better and to be different. And I think that these are kind of practical things that we can do whilst all the while thinking about all the other things that the other um, panelists have talked about that we can take forward. Those are some of the concrete things that we can do on a daily basis to try to encourage that progressive, collaborative, working, thinking to understand that we actually do have a lot of things in common because I think that begins to break the barriers down. Brilliant. Thanks, Clive. Final word to you, Marius. What do we need to do? Thank you very much. So I'm going to boil down my final comments to just two central points. And I think they tie into both some of the questions about, you know, what level do we pursue these organisational questions on national, local, international, and so on. And also the question of competence. I'll run through them in turn. Um, I think the, I'm glad that Paul likes the idea of progressive Congress. I think that's an it's essential uh, part to try and bring about a national level picture of this coordination happening. I do also think that we need to think about local and regional differences in this, in the sense that there'll be some constituencies, and anecdotally I know that uh, in, in the Brighton constituencies, for example, there's a lot more collaboration between Greens, Lib Dems and Labour on policy questions than uh, there are perhaps in other constituencies as well, though I'm sure that model can be replicated in different combinations and constellations across the country. And, you know, following the vertical diffusion of national sovereignty, we need to look at the international level as well. We need to be having these conversations with the Portuguese and with other uh, progressives across Europe and across the world who are successfully managing these kind of popular fronts, left fronts, progressive fronts, however you want to define them. So I think that's one organizationally one thing to go forward. And on competence, I think that's a huge asset that the progressives and the left have against the conservative right. The conservative right, as currently is, as is currently you know, making complete hash of the coronavirus response, they earned their spurs on the basis of rejecting expertise and rejecting competence, and they're being shown up by it. They're, be they're already being shown up by it on the Europe negotiations, they're definitely being shown up 
by it on coronavirus. So I think centering a very sober, expert-led, evidence-led approach in the kind of progressive uh, policy coordinations which we come up with can have can bear really interesting fruit once the electorate, quite rapidly, I would imagine, gets bought of being sold a lie by Boris Johnson and the current government. So those are my two points. Multiple levels of incompetence. And we'll have lots of head, but we'll have lots of heart as well, and lots of vision and lots of, you know, what, what is the good society and why is it more seductive and why is it more thrilling and why is it more fulfilling? And we've got a range of policies from democracy to the Green New Deal to basic income to what do we do about the precariat? You know, and 75% of Labour Party members now support PR. Now, there is something going on. There is something moving. Um, uh, and we have to shift it. We'll shift it through ideas, organisation and dialogue like this. So I'd really like to thank um, Marius for the book and for the conversation. I'd really like to thank Molly, Paul and Clive, who are stalwarts of doing this kind of collaboration and talking across parties. And we'll always get more Liberal Democrats into that as well just to say that the support of our members is really what makes these events in our campaigning and our policy and thinking happen. So if you're interested in joining Compass, go to the website compassonline.org.uk and please join us. Just to say that next week we'll be joined by basic income guru Guy Standing to talk about basic income and its role in building that kind of alliance. Until then, thank you again, all of you so much, the members, the non-members, Paul, Molly, Clive, Grace, and finally, Marius. Thanks very much. Take care. Look after yourself. See you soon. Good night, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 So, if you like what you've heard today and want to be part of a much more equal, democratic and sustainable future, a good society, then visit us at compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast and you'll be able to join us live on future calls just like this one. You can tweet me at Neil, N-E-A-L underscore Compass or Compass at Compass Office. And if you've enjoyed this week's episode, please give us a rating. It will help us reach more listeners in the future. And it's only fair that they know it's bloody complicated too.